Hello, and welcome to the History of India podcast. This is episode 2C, India, Rome and the Red Sea. In the last episode, we were on a merchant's journey. We'd picked up some muslin in Bengal and we were exporting it to Rome. But it's a long journey, and frankly, we got kind of distracted, peering into the carts of some spice merchants, hearing about how Romans were fooled about the monsoon, that sort of thing. So that by the time the episode finished, we'd only just left India. Well, in this episode, we're going to complete the journey. We're going to make it all the way to Rome. Along the way, we'll stop in on some Indians who've made the journey before us. And afterwards, we'll zoom out and we'll take a look at how trade affected the economics of Rome and India. Good morning. It's another quiet day lounging around on deck, sharing stories with our fellow merchants, whilst the northeast monsoon winds push us steadily onwards through clear, warm, slightly muggy days. We've been at sea for a few weeks now, and that's not a concern for us because there's enough grain on board to feed a city, though perhaps we could do with taking on some fresh water. But today is a special day because today we're going to turn left, we're going to turn towards the south. And not too much after that, mountains are going to start to rise over the horizon. This is the peculiar island of Dioscori. Dioscori is a place like no other. On the map, it looks like it's right next to land, right at the entrance of the Red Sea. But when you see it in real life, it's a different matter. It's completely remote. Africa is 150 miles away. Arabia is 100 miles more in a different direction. If raiding parties come here and attack, no one's going to come to help you. Our ship will come into port on the north of the island, and we'll find that the port is guarded by Arabian soldiers, because in these ancient times, the island's ruled by a king based way up north in southern Arabia. In fact, in modern times, the island's ruled in rough, from roughly the same place. It's part of Yemen today. The Greek merchants on our ship will get down, they'll find some other merchants, and they'll begin bartering and trading in the shadow of the mountain. And there's plenty to buy here, even for a merchant fresh from India because the island is one of the best sources in the world for incense, so they'll be bartering for a bit of that. It's also the only source in the world for dragon's blood. Yep, dragon's blood. I mean, not blood from a dragon. There aren't any great lizards up in those mountains. Instead, it's blood from the dragon's blood tree. The dragon's blood tree is a tree that grows only on the island, nowhere else in the world. And it's a really alien-looking tree. There's a network of branches that look more like roots or maybe coral or maybe a brain, and they scraggle up. And on top of that, there's this just dense foliage which seems plonked down on top like a child's drawing. And if you take a knife and you cut the bark, you cut the, the trunk, then a thick red sap oozes out. And that's dragon's blood. It's used in dyes, and it's used in the most powerful medicines. Now, whilst the traders are busy trading, we can slip off and take a look around the island. Down here on the plains in the north, there's a settlement surrounding the port. 
and it's a settlement basically of merchants and sailors who've settled down to life on this strange island. There are Greeks, there are Palmyrans, there are Arabs, and there are Indians too. In fact, perhaps there are more Indians here than any other group. So after catching up with the latest news, we head inland towards the mountains. Now we're not going to go too far. We won't go so far that we'll meet the natives of the islands. They're pretty reclusive, they hide up in the mountains. It's rumoured that St Thomas stopped by here on his way to India and he converted them all to Christianity. But it's hard to tell because they pretty much just keep themselves to themselves. But that's okay, because we're headed somewhere else. We're headed towards a cave that we now call the Huck Cave. Its entrance is 350 metres above sea level, so we've got quite a climb. And once we get there, and we have a rest in the shade of the, of the cave entrance, we still have a long walk ahead. And that's because it's a long cave. Two kilometres long, in fact, so that's more than a mile. So let's follow the passage as it slopes gently down into the mountain. At the fork, head right. I think it's right, it might be left. Then the cave opens out a bit more after that. Overall, the cave's actually pretty big. It's about 37 metres high on average, 90 metres wide. There's no need to feel claustrophobic down here. And if you can get your eyes adjusted to the gloom, you can see them. The inscriptions on the walls, illuminated by the dim glow of the incense burners. And you'll notice that some of them are religious symbols. So perhaps people came down here to pray. Greeks, Arabs, and most of all, Indians. And people have left more than religious symbols. Some of them have written their names on the wall. In Brahmi script, the script used by ancient Indians. Vishnu Dutta, Bhati Putra. Daraka, son of Kushudraka. And those aren't the only signs that Indians have scratched onto the wall. There are drawings of Indian ships down here too. The ships of Gautamiputra, the Satavahana. And yes, by the way, I'm aware I constantly mispronounce Satavahana. Many apologies, I just can't get it in my head. It's not just the Satavahanas who get a nod. Kanishka, the great cushion, his symbol's down here too. So Indians from all, all over North India and the Deccan have been here. Now the Huck Cave isn't the only cave in the area. In fact, this whole island is riddled with caves and tunnels. There are 20 miles of underground passages, and it's not a big island. The longest one is an exhausting eight miles of darkness. More, in fact. But whilst we're up here, let's go and just visit one other cave, because there's one a few kilometres down the way, which is a good source of water. I mean, to be honest, it's not really necessary to find a good source of water in a cave at this time of year. There's plenty of other water about, but let's take the trip anyway. It's not too far. The entrance is huge. It's about 10 metres across. But actually, it's hard to spot, because it's hidden by a giant fig tree. Or at least it is in the modern day. I imagine it is in ancient times too. The cave is broad, although it's nothing like on the scale of the Hut Cave. It's about five metres wide and a couple of metres high. You might be ducking your head once or twice in a couple of places. We follow the passage down a hundred metres or so. 
it shimmies to the left and then to the right again, but keep on going. Because down at the end, there's a cavern with some doodles on the wall and a lovely pool of clear water. But anyway, it's time to get back to the ship. The ship's been restocked with water. The traders have what they want. And we're off to the Red Sea. We're headed right for the Gulf of Aden. And after the Gulf of Aden, we turn 90 degrees almost to the right, through the narrow straits that lead us into the Red Sea proper. We'll finally lose the trade winds, the northeast monsoon. At this point, the Red Sea is only 20 miles wide. And you almost feel like you could touch both Africa and Asia if you had long enough arms. Now, Indian ships don't often go past this point. Sometimes Indians weren't allowed into the Red Sea at all, it seems. Sometimes Indian ships were allowed only just a little way in, but they always were met with a hostile reception. And they were either forced or inclined to unload their goods at ports just inside the straits. Most of them went no further than the port of Agilis. Agilis is a port on the Ethiopian side of the Red Sea. If you spot that hilly island, that's the marker. The island, by the way, is called, imaginatively enough, Mountain Island. Well, the harbour to Agilis is just beyond that, about 15 miles behind the island. And there, the Indian ships would offload their goods, ivory and what have you. And those goods would tend to be carried about five days inland to where the king of those parts reigned, the king of Aksum. Now, the king of Aksum was king of an up-and-coming kingdom. He was making a huge profit from the India-Roman trade. And on the basis of that profit, he's building an empire. Soon, Aksum's going to invade its neighbours and become a big player in the area. But anyway, we're not going to stop at Agilis. We're a Roman ship, so we're going to sail right on past. And anyway, as we're sailing down the Red Sea, we've got a choice to make. Because there are three Indian ports that we could pull in at. Option number one is that we sail all the way down to the end of the Red Sea. There's a port there called Arsinoe, and from there we could follow the canal upstream. This was the canal cleared by Caesar Augustus, and later emperors would expand it to a wide canal and dig it further. It uh, goes up towards the Nile, and then we could turn back downstream along the Nile proper to Alexandria. The whole route is heavily guarded by Roman military and it's safe in the heart of a Roman province. If option one sounds lovely to you, well, that's because I haven't told you the drawbacks. As you approach the end of the Red Sea, there's this constant wind in your face, blowing steadily all year round. I mean, it's not like it's gale force, but it's a few miles an hour, and sailing against it is going to be really slow going. But it's worse than that. There are still quite a few pirates around. And... Just to add a little bit of extra difficulty, there are shoals, so we have to navigate, wind and, or weave and wind our way up towards the port. So let's not bother with option one. It's mostly used by large industrial ships coming to feed the Red Sea ports and go back again, grain barges and the like. Delicate, lighter stuff like our muslin is more easy to transport across land and it doesn't tend to go that route. Well, there are other options. Here's option two. It's a port much closer on the Egyptian side of the Red Sea. It's called Muas Hormus, which means Muscle Harbour. And it's guarded by a large fort. Roman soldiers sit behind the parapets of the fort and watch the ships coming into harbour. It's a good strong place for a military outpost, 
and in future years, Roman emperors will keep their navy there. But actually, that's about all there is at Muscle Harbour, a military outpost. There's not much else to welcome us. There seems to be no permanent town, at least not judging from the archaeological records. Maybe there are some seasonal stalls, some townsfolk who gather around the fort in winter when the ships start to come back from India, but no one seems to have settled permanently in the area. And frankly, I can't blame them, because there's nothing around for miles. And it's dry. Very dry, as in, you'd be lucky to get four millimetres of rainfall in a year dry. And the nearest wells are miles and miles inland, literally. This is not the sort of place you settle down to for an easy life. Well, if we want a warmer welcome, there's always option three. And option three is the closest one to us too, though it also gives us the longest walk through the desert. It's called Bernice, which is such a nice name that plenty of other places are also called Bernice, quite confusingly. Anyway, Bernice during our period is the most important port on the Egyptian coast. Actually, we don't really know that much about it. It hasn't been excavated by modern archaeologists. All you can see is a few stones peeking out of the sand. Apparently, those stones are a temple of some sort. It seems to have been a sizeable town, though, to judge from the written histories, and settled all year round. And that means there was a constant stream of camels coming to Bernice, bringing food and water just to keep the residents alive. 500 camels a year, in fact. So let's pull in at Bernice and load our muslin and other goods onto camels that are arriving. Now, before we leave, there are a few taxes to pay. There's the transit tax, there's the carriage tax, and, well, I won't bore you with the details, but suffice it to say, it all adds up to quite a lot of money. To cut a long story short, you just have to pay 25% of the value of our goods. Yep, 25%. Now, perhaps we could have avoided paying the Roman tax if we had offloaded at the port on the other side of the sea, the Arabian side of the Red Sea. That's still not a Roman province, and it doesn't seem to be under Roman control, but we'd just end up paying 25% tax to someone else, so there's not too much point. Now, it might seem that we're giving away all of the money we're going to earn on this trip. Because don't forget, it's not just 25% tax we have to pay. We also have to pay for the ride up the Gunga, the caravan south, the next ride down the river, our passage on this Roman ship, not to mention all of the caravans and ships that we'll need from here to Rome. Don't worry though, we're going to make all our money back and then some. Because when we get to Rome, we'll be able to sell our muslin for a hundred times its original cost. A hundred times. It's going to be well worth the trip. Once all of our tax is paid, we'll go and find our caravan. And preferably, we'll get together with traders from several different ships. So our caravan might have over a thousand camels. It will be run by local merchants and guarded by a private security force. Some extra safety as we set off into the emptiness of the desert. The route through the desert is well-travelled, though. And it's actually fairly safe and pleasant, at least as far as desert travel goes. It's not paved, there are no paved roads here, and that's because camels prefer the sand. But there are piles of stones that mark the way, and they're placed every one and a half kilometres or three kilometres. 
So you can reach one pile, and then you just scan the horizon for the next one. There's no need for a night navigator to navigate by the stars like there is in the deserts of India. Actually, the desert isn't completely empty anyway. The Romans quarry stone here, and if you're in the right place, you can see teams of slaves carving great blocks out of the ground. And there are gems here too, so there's an increasing amount of mining activity. And where the road runs against the hills, you can see the watchtowers at the top of the hills. They're manned by Roman soldiers, four or five of them at a time, keeping watch for raiders. Not that four or five Roman soldiers will be much help if raiders come, there's just too few of them, but what they'll do is light a signal, and the signal will be seen by the next outpost, the next watchtower, and they'll light a signal, and the next watchtower will pass the signal on, and eventually the signal will reach a Roman encampment somewhere in all of this vast desert, and the encampment will send out horsemen to our rescue. To be honest, I don't know if the system works. It seems to me that raiders would be long gone before the Roman cavalry ever got here. But at least we'd get advance warning if raiders are bearing down on us, and maybe a passing Roman patrol would come to our aid. Anyway, assuming we don't get waylaid by bandits, we'll come to the fortified stopping places. There are about eight of them on our journey, so that's more than one every other day. They're built by the Roman state, and some of them are really quite significant. They can take hundreds of guests, up to 2,000 guests in one case. And we can hide there from the midday heat, draw water from the cisterns or from the deep wells, whatever they have, before we plod off again into the desert. On our journey through the desert, most of our fellow travellers are Greeks. There are sailors, servants, ship lookouts, helmsmen, craftsmen, guards, slaves and merchants. But there are plenty of Indians coming this way too. And in fact, one left a memento in a temple to the Greek god Pan near here. He wrote an inscription with his name. After 12 hot days and freezing cold nights, working our way through the desert, we reach civilization again. The Nile. On the near bank is the city of Coptus. Coptus is the administrative hub of the area, and it's got a sort of frontier town, edge of empire feel. This is the home of the caravan that we've been travelling with, the caravan that's a sort of family-run business, and there are plenty of other business people here too. There are Roman freedwomen running get-rich schemes who own or manage several different boats at the Red Sea ports from the relative comfort of Coptus. There are Italians who are exporting wine, and there's rather a large arms trade. Weapons can be had here very cheap. Anyway, here we'll leave the caravan and load our muslin onto the boats on the Nile. From here to Alexandria, we'll take the same time as it took getting through the desert to here. But it's going to be a much more pleasant ride, I think. Slipping down the current, watching the farmland go by, everything running smoothly and steadily, like people have had centuries of practice at getting down the Nile. And of course, that's because they have had centuries of practice. So it's 12 days later when we slide into the great city of Alexandria and we catch our first glimpse of the Mediterranean. Alexandria, packed full with people from all parts of the world, including India. We could spend hours talking about its library, 
its lighthouse, which is a wonder of the ancient world, and the peculiar mix of Greek and Egyptian life, and the Indians that you'll find here in amongst the cosmopolitan crowd, managing trade with the Roman Empire. But that's a story for another series of podcasts altogether. Now, most of the merchants that we've been travelling with so far will stop in Alexandria. Some of them will sell their produce to the factories here, and quite a lot of the factories are taking in Indian goods and turning them into Roman luxuries. There are pearl factories where pearls are drilled and strung up or attached to shoes or clothing or what have you. In fact, there are so many pearl factories that there are guilds of pearl drillers. Other factories are there which take in ivory and ebony and cut them and make them into tables. In other factories, gems are fashioned into jewellery. I suppose that the craftsmen here know the latest fashions of the Romans better than the craftsmen back in India, so it makes sense to make the finished products after the journey. So some of our fellow travellers will sell their goods here, but plenty of others will keep hold of their stuff and put them in Alexandria's huge warehouses. The warehouses are very well guarded, so it's a safe place to keep them. And in any case, it's just for the short term. Because these merchants are waiting for the huge grain barges to start again. Now we've come to India with the monsoon winds. And because of that, by this stage of the journey, it's only March. Maybe a month or more earlier, in fact, because on this particular journey, we set out at the start of the season. And the huge grain barges start bringing Egyptian grain directly to the hungry Roman masses only in May. So most of the merchants are going to wait in Alexandria for a while until the direct grain barges resume. We're not going to wait, though. This journey has gone on long enough, and I'm impatient to get on to Rome. And in any case, we're only carrying a light load of muslin. We don't need to wait for a huge ship just to carry that. Rather than waiting for the gargantuan grain ships, we're going to hop onto a smaller ship. And that means that we'll take a less direct route. Hopping from port to port, up Judea, Syria, Turkey, Greece, and finally Rome. And because none of that's got very much to do with India, I'm going to pass over it. As we go up the coast of Italy, we have one last choice. Where to set our goods down. Now we could go to Ostia, Ostia, the port of Rome. By the way, if you ever get a chance to go to Ostia, I urge you to do so. It's amazingly well preserved. The whole place became a deserted a couple of centuries after the time of this episode, and then it was covered in silt. And the result is that pretty much the whole city is still there. In fact, it's up to the second and third story in a couple of places. Starting at the cemetery outside the city walls, you can walk for 20 minutes or so in one direction without running out of ruins. Past the Colosseum and behind it the merchants, each with their own symbol in a mosaic on the floor. Past that, the bars. Wash basins are still there. Benches that patrons sat on. The place where food was heated and the slabs of stone where drink was served. And opposite the bars, you can find the residential apartments. Those are so well preserved that you can even climb to the first floor of one of them and still have more of the apartment block above you. And still, the majority of the city lies ahead of you. Temples, bars and much more. It's always surprising to me that Austria isn't better known and always visited. But we're not going to pull into Austria this time. Not on this journey. And there's a good reason for that. The whole place is silted up, and you can only pull in your ship quite a way away from the city. 
In later years, Emperor Trajan is going to dig a port nearby, the Portus Romani, and is going to connect it to both the Tiber and to the sea. And that would be a good place to pull in. But for now, pulling in at Rome is a little bit of a hassle. We're going to pull in well before we reach Rome at Puteoli. And Puteoli is where pretty much all the engine imports come into Italy. Some of them are made into furniture at the nearby furniture factory, but most of the goods then make the 150-mile journey by road straight to Rome. We're actually going to sell some of our goods here at Puteoli. Just a few bits of muslin, and maybe this weird table-leg statue of a woman carved in the Ganharan style that I've kept hold of. It's destined to go to the nearby city of Pompeii, which seems like a really lovely place. The rest of our goods will take up to Rome. Now, Rome is a city where not all that many Indians have settled. There are large groups of Indians in various parts of the Roman Empire, but in Rome itself, there's no evidence of a sizable community. There are a few Indian slaves. Apparently, they were used to tame elephants and what have you. There's the occasional ambassador from northwest India, or even from southern India, but there's no stable population. So finally, after well over six months on the road, we're coming into Rome. And here we need to find out the right district of Rome to go to, because different parts of Rome specialise in selling different products. So Indian imports will be split up and sent to different parts of the city. Coming into the city from the south, from Puteoli, the first thing we'll see are the Horia, which are the large public warehouses. A few years from our journey, the Romans will build a special warehouse just for spices called the Pepper Warehouse. That's going to be a bit further on, past where they're going to build a famous amphitheatre, again in a few years. Take a left from there, and you'll find the place where Indian parrots are kept and sold. Indian parrots on their way to Roman kitchens, and then on their way to Roman dishes. And if you carry straight on, uh, from where the pepper warehouse we built, there the ivory and crystal materials are sold, and, and any, any pearls are sold that weren't sold in Alexandria. But we're going to end our journey where those two roads branch off. At the Roman Forum. Oh, and um, before we go, we should say exactly just how much of all of that story is true. All the general historical details about places and products were correct, of course, or at least our best guess based on the history. That was kind of the point of the story. But I haven't been to all the places I described. The caves, for instance, on the island, they're described on the basis of archaeological maps. I'd love to go, but I haven't been. And also, we haven't got evidence that any one person did all of the things that we did in the story. For instance, we don't know that any one person visited the two caves that we visited. And we don't have any evidence that Indian merchants travelled by the Red Sea further than Egypt. Indians certainly got to Rome occasionally, but they might have taken a different route. Still, if I've done my job well, it's been a lightly fictionalised string of historical facts. I hope you enjoyed the ride. Let's zoom out and take some time to think about the bigger picture. Every year, there are around 120 journeys of the sort that we've just been on. That's every year, 120 ships arriving in India, loaded up with goods, returning to their home port. And that's only 120 ships for one port per year. 
And there are three main Roman ports in the Red Sea. And that's not the only trade going on between India and Rome. There are Indian ships getting their goods to Rome through Arabia or up the Persian Gulf. And then there's the land route too. So what was the impact on Rome and India of all these hundreds and hundreds of trade journeys? Well, the most obvious thing was that there was a huge trade imbalance. The trade between India and Rome was one-sided in India's favour. The ships leaving India for Rome, they were laid down with expensive luxuries. Tortoise shell, pearl, silk, lac, onyx, conch shell, diamonds, pearls, ivory, muslin, fine cotton. And spices too. Pepper, cinnamon, indigo, costum, sesame, spikenard, turmeric, ginger, sugar, sandalwood, aloe, cloves. And there were some slaves sold to Rome too. And animals. Quite a few parrots and monkeys, Romans ate parrots, and the occasional elephant, or one-horned rhino, lion or leopard. Those were used uh, for display purposes or in the games in Rome. And Indian hunting dogs became a regular feature of Roman life. So the ships leaving India for Rome were low in the water, heavy with goods. The ships coming into new ports, they weren't very full at all. There was a little bit of red coral, Red coral was pretty, and it was used pretty much like you use a valuable gem, only a little bit more fragile. Then there was wine. Wine was drunk in parts of India, and the Roman wine was just better. And there was glass too. Either glass fashioned into vessels already, or raw glass waiting to be used. India didn't really need this. It had its own unique ways of making glass. A little bit of papyrus was imported as well, though again, not too much. Indian writing tended to be done on palm leaves, and palm leaves are a little bit of a hassle. Especially as they get old, they can get very flaky indeed. And they just disintegrate beneath the touch. But papyrus isn't much better. For the first thing, it's a little bit laborious. You have to stick the papyrus sheets next to one another to make a roll. And... Even in good conditions, it can get so flaky that documents on papyrus have to be rewritten every couple of hundred years. And papyrus just doesn't deal well with humidity. So not much of it was imported. Pretty much the only other thing that's on those ships coming from Rome is a touch of saffron. And that's it. Like I said, a bit one-sided. The odd pinch of saffron hardly balanced the scales against all that pepper, sesame, spikenard and so on. The ships that left India were so laden down that they were literally low in the water. And when they got to the Red Sea ports, they offloaded off so many more goods than they took back on that the ships rose in the water. Sometimes dangerously so, so they had to add extra ballast or they'd be riding so high that it would be unsafe on the seas. The same happened on the journey from Alexandria to Rome. Going to Rome, they were low in the water. Coming back, they needed extra ballast. The result of this trade imbalance was that the major import from Rome to India was gold. Heaps of it. Gold coins. In the south, the Roman gold coins were so common that historians have sometimes thought it was a deliberate policy by the Romans to make the Indians use Roman currency. Well, if so, it just didn't work, because Indians further north simply melted down the Roman gold coins and used them to make their own coins, with their own rulers' faces on them. But the Roman gold coins kept on coming. 
Now, all of this trade imbalance started out innocently enough. The first Roman emperor, Augustus, he was the one who really opened the sea route from India to Rome again. And he was actually rather an austere man, personally. Not exactly self-controlled, but he lived a fairly modest life. He needed the Indian trade in luxuries to keep the senators and their wives happy, but he didn't dabble that much in it himself. His successor was Tiberius, and Tiberius saw an increasing amount of Indian luxuries pouring into his empire, and it worried him very much indeed. Silk togas had become all the rage, fine Chinese silk being imported through India, and Emperor Tiberius banned men from wearing silk altogether. He made it a law, and although it wasn't law, he strongly disapproved of women wearing silk too. It was just too much to tolerate. Togo is a symbol of Romanness, and it was becoming decadent and foreign. Tiberius didn't stop there either. He was not just worried about silk, he was worried about the whole luxury thing. He was worried about women wearing expensive gemstones, for example, and he tried to clamp down on it. But none of Tiberius's moralising or his rules did any good. The gold kept on pouring from Rome to India. At increasing levels, actually, we found 453 gold coins of Augustus in India, and there are more than double that from the reign of Tiberius, 1007. By the time of Emperor Nero, that's three emperors later, things were really out of hand. Nero himself really liked pearls. He had pearls on his shoes, pearls on his bed, pearls on his walls. And all those pearls had to come from somewhere. The best pearls was from South India, so that's where, where he got them from. He loved other Indian things too, ivory, mother of pearls and gems, stuff like that. And he passed on his love of Indian luxury to the Roman aristocracy. He actually handed out gems as gifts. And the love of luxury went the other way too, it passed back to him from his friends. One day, he visited a friend's house and he saw that they had this new construction, gold and silver pipes carrying perfumed water around to scent the air. He thought, that looks jolly nice, had one built in his own palace, so that means there were, there's more Indian perfume that needed to be imported from Rome, and so more Roman gold that needed to be exported to India. Now whilst this is going on, the Roman moralists are endlessly complaining about all this decadence. Take Nero's tutor Seneca, for example. Seneca wrote a book on India, and he complains of all the tortoiseshell the precious woods and the silks that are corrupting the Roman elite. Seneca was a hypocrite, though. He had 500 tables with ivory legs. Or take Pliny. Pliny complained that the decadence was corrupting Roman manliness, but he saw that it was also hurting the Roman economy. Pliny actually gives us numbers here. He says 100 million sesterces a year is flowing out of Rome to the east, and 55 million of that is going to India alone. That's the price we pay he says, for our luxuries and our women. And in fact, the Roman economy started to dip, slide. Silver coins had increasing amounts of alloy. They were adulterated. About 20% of alloy by Nero's time. In subsequent generations, it became 30%, 50% more, until people stopped using them altogether. Roman gold coins also decreased in weight, halving in their gold con content by the time of Constantine. All told, the economy of Rome slipped to 10% of its value by AD 800. 
But let's keep things in perspective. The Indian trade really wasn't that significant to the Roman economy. In fact, the figures that Pliny quotes as outrageous, they're not really that large in the grand scheme of things. It comes out to about £10 million in today's money. Now, Pliny probably underestimated, but even allowing for that, the ancient trade deficit between India and Rome would be dwarfed by the modern trade deficit between America and China. It's very hard to believe that the Roman economy was destroyed by such a comparatively small trade. Actually, the sea trade with Rome wasn't that significant to India either. Sure, it brought more gold into India, and for a while it made some close political contact with the Mediterranean, but look, India was the richest place on earth, and Rome was comparatively poor. It wasn't even the second richest place, it was a distant third maybe. So the picture that some historians have, especially the older historians, of Rome making India rich just runs against our evidence. The truth is that, probably, the trade with Rome wasn't a big deal in the Indian economy. It probably wasn't even the biggest foreign trade route into India, or out of India. There was the land trade with the rest, and there was the Silk Road to China. The craftsmen of India fed into that, and the rulers of India sometimes controlled it. And then there was sea trade on the other side, on the east coast of India. It's received far less attention from, his, from historians, but it might have been even more important. Indian merchants had been trading with Burma for many centuries, but in this period, Indian merchants extended their range to cover more of Southeast Asia, and they fed military supplies into the newly uh, split three kingdoms of China. But all of that is a story for another podcast. Every week we read something from the original sources. This week I thought we'd read a good Roman moralist getting high and mighty. So I've chosen a bit from Dio Chrysostom, a professional philosopher and professional grumpy old man. He lived and worked shortly after the period of our voyage from Bengal to Rome in the second half of the first century. And in this passage, he's complaining about Roman luxury and trade. It goes like this. Come now, in heaven's name, do tell me. Why should we admire, feel proud and congratulate the city that's greatest and most powerful of all, Rome? Is it because it has excellent laws, probity of citizens and moderation of rulers, or are those things trifles and worthless and easily to come by? And is it instead because it has a multitude of inhabitants, a lavish marketplace, and sumptuous edifices, for its Syrian and Babylonian fabrics, and because its citizens roof their houses with gold and the whole place teems with silver and amber and ivory? No, look, if it were advantageous to possess gold, then there's nothing to prevent the Ethiopians of the interior from being deemed the most fortunate. For in that land, gold is less highly prized than lead is with us, and it's said that in the region, criminals are bound with heavy fetters of gold. But they're nonetheless prisoners and depraved and evildoers. But to congratulate wealthy men and great, of great riches in Rome, when in all other respects they are no better than the very ordinary folk, is as if, on seeing the prisoners of Ethiopia emerge from their prison, one were to envy them and judge them the most fortunate of all to be the one with the heaviest fetters. Are you aware that all those peoples, the Celts, the Indians, the Iberians, the Arabs and the Babylonians, they exact tribute from us? Not from our land or from our flocks and herds, but from our own folly. For if 
When by force of arms, any people get the upper hand and compel the vanquished to pay them silver, that's called tribute. And it's a sign that the people who are vanquished are not very fortunate or brave, because they have to pay the tribute to others. Well, if that's true, isn't it also true that if no one's or taxed or compelled us, but because of our own stupidity and self-indulgence, we take what we prize most highly, silver, and we freely send it over a long road and cross a vast sea to those who can't easily set foot upon our own soil, that that's even more cowardly and disgraceful. Except for one thing, that to offer tiny, fragile pebbles and bones of wild beasts when they take our silver and gold, exchanging useless things for useful. That's the only difference. I've spoken these words, not in a spirit of idle folly, but because these goods that men most desire and admire most who own, they are good for nothing. Lump all of them together, they're not worth a single drachma. Human beings can never become fortunate so long as they are ignorant and empty-headed, not even if they were to live in the park of Sousa, that park that's floating in the air. That's it for this week. I hope you've enjoyed it. And if you have been enjoying the podcasts, please consider donating to my wife's charity. That's the Snehal Sidhu Memorial Fund. Details are on the website. The website is historyofindiapodcast.com. Have a great week. Take care.